Let's do it. You ready? All right, everybody, come find your seats. We're going to get started here in just a second. If you can come to your seats and ha have a sit down. Thank you all so much for, for joining us this morning. Again, my name's Matt Brocker. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Uh, Jeff, the guy who was just up, is, is the normal guy. Um, and, and he asked me this week because he was out of town to, to cover for him. Normal, yes. The normal guy. The regular guy. And so we've been in a study in the book of Revelation uh, for the past several weeks. Actually, a couple of weeks ago we had a conference uh, about prophecy and so we're, we're following up that, that conference with a series in uh, Revelation 1, 2, and 3. And so this week, today, we're in Revelation chapter 2. So if you brought your Bible, go ahead and turn there. All right. And, and as part of the introduction this morning, I think it's important that we re review two specific items uh, that we saw last week. All right. And it'll help us to kind of get our bearings and help us to get some context as far as what we're going to get into today. So come on, Nick. <laughs> All right, so if you're looking at your sheet, you should have a, a couple of things of review there. The first one is John's perspective of the events that he sees from the revelation of Christ, okay? We saw a couple of weeks ago that, that the book of Revelation is the revelation of Christ. It's the things he's revealing to John, and it's the, also the revealing of Christ himself, okay? This specific portion is about the church. And the first thing we need to see is John's perspective of these events, right? In Revelation 1, verse 10, it says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. So he's, he's in the Spirit. He's not, it's not a normal day for John, okay? Things are happening. He's, he's been taken somewhere else. He's got this spiritual experience, all right? And he's in the Lord's day. And, and the Lord's day is not Sunday, today, sometimes we refer to every Sunday, you know, I'm going to go to church on the, Lord's, on the Lord's day. The Lord's day is the day of the Lord. It's the day that all scripture is pointing to, the day that Jesus Christ returns to this earth. Okay, that's the day of the Lord. So John has been transported in the spirit to the Lord's day. So his perspective is that. The next part of his perspective, he says in verse 19 of chapter 1, write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. He says there's some things past, some things present, and some things future. Remember, he's standing on the Lord's day. He's in the future from where we are today. So his past that he's looking back to, he says, write the things thou hast seen, that's the church. And then he says, write the things which are, that's the end, specifically, of the tribulation. All right, that when Christ's foot touches the ground, okay? And then the future things which will be the millennium, and the, the eternity future, okay? So John is taken to a future event and is looking back on the church age, and he sees seven churches, okay? The second item we need to understand before we get into chapter two is, is there are three applications of scripture, and we're gonna see this over and over and over today. There are three applications of scripture. There's a historical application. There are events that actually happened in time. These events, there's seven actual churches that existed in Asia Minor. I think we had a map last week. There you go. All right, so this is Asia Minor. This is current-day Turkey. And these churches would have existed exactly where those little pinpoints are, okay? Doctrinal, the doctrinal application, this is what does the passage teach us? There are seven periods of church history that brings us up to the event of the rapture and the tribulation, okay? 
So it's doctrinal because it helps us lay out a timeline so that we know some things about today and know some things about the future. And then it's inspirational. Each passage is inspirational. There are seven kinds of churches that can be found throughout all of church history, all right? So today, there are all seven of these types of churches all over the place. And we're trying to, we're going to go through this study to try and identify maybe which one we are. Maybe there are some things that we have in common with this type of church. Maybe they're good and maybe they're bad. And we just need to evaluate who we are as a body, as a church, and, and, and evaluate that before the Lord, okay? So today, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to see how it breaks down in four sections, and each of those four sections, we're going to look at these three applications. So let's begin by reading chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, how thou thou canst not bear them which are evil, and how thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience for my name's sake, hast labored and hast not fainted. In verse 4 he says, Nevertheless I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, thank you again, as always, for your word, how it guides us, how it comes alive before us. I just pray, Lord, that today you would do just that in our hearts. You would you would soften our hearts so that your word can come alive, so that we can respond appropriately to what you have to say. Help us to identify where we have things in common with this church. Help us to evaluate what needs to change so that we can lay it at your feet and be the believers, be the body that you desire us to be here. We love you so much. We ask that your name be glorified today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so on your sheet, the first thing we come to, the church is called. Right? It, it's named. The church is called. Revelation 2.1, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus. Right? So again, historically, this is an actual church that actually existed in the port city of Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the major port cities in western, what is today western Turkey. Okay? It, it's, it's across the, I believe, the Aegean Sea from Greece. All right? it's, it's just right there at the top of the Mediterranean area. All right? It was one of the major port cities. It was um, <clears throat> a place that Paul visited in Acts 18 with friends of his, Aquila and Priscilla. He returns later in Acts 19 to find disciples that knew nothing of the Holy Spirit and only the baptism of John. Okay, so they, they don't even know what the Holy Spirit is, and they only know this guy John, who baptized Jesus years and years ago. They didn't even know about Jesus. All right, so, so Paul, or, or John, or yeah, Paul fills them in with all the details that they're missing about Christ. They get saved, and now all of a sudden there's a church in Ephesus that wasn't there before. All right, so these, these men are the beginning of the church of Ephesus. Later in, in verse, or chapter 20, Paul, Paul spends, or has at that point spent three years as the leader of that church. All right, and he's, he's brought the leaders to himself, and he's, 
giving them a charge, and he's saying, hey, you know, you guys did awesome. This was my intention of being here. We, we accomplished some things in these three years, but you're never going to see me again. I, I'm heading out, All right, And we'll see some of those details here in a little bit, but Paul knows that that, that was a, a, a harsh reality for those leaders, for those men that, that he had spent three years with, giving his life and suffering different you know, difficulties at the, the hands of the government there. And so later he writes the letter to the Ephesians. We have that, that letter in our, our Bible in the New Testament. He writes that letter to encourage them and let them know of their incredible identity in Christ. He lets them know, look, look I'm not there, you don't need me, because look what you have in Christ. This is who he says you are. This is God's reality if you believe it and follow it, Okay. So you can go to that same book of scripture today and we can find, find those same incredible promises that apply to us as Christian believers. All right, so the doctrinal application we see in this verse is this is a church period that lasted from 33 to 200 AD. Some people say it lasted from 90 to 200. Um, so it either lasted from the end of Jesus to, to 200 or the end of the apostles to 200. We have the history of the apostles. We have the book of Acts. So whichever way you look at it, it ends around 200 A.D. Hopefully this isn't confusing because the, the history and the doctrine overlap in a lot of ways. Because we need the history to form these time frames. Okay, so the, book of Eph- or the, the, the church of Ephesus, we say, lasted from either 33 or 90 A.D. to 200. Then we have the, the church period of Smyrna, which is next, which lasts so many hundred years. And then Pergamos, and then on and on and on, and then we come to Laodicea at the end, and we form this timeline that, that takes us about 2,000 years. It, it fills in the gaps so that we can understand what's next, and that's why the history is doctrinal, okay? Does that make sense? So we're, we're putting this together. We take the details that God lays out to each of these seven churches, and we can look back at history, and we can see events that are very similar to exactly what he's, he's describing, so we've got a timeline now, all right? So that, that is your doctrinal application. The inspirational application of the name Ephesus, it means fully purposed. This is a fully purposed church. And over in the letter that Paul wrote to this same church, chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Unto me who am less than the least of all saints is, give, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by, Christ, by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. I've done all this for a purpose, to put myself on display. Verse 11, according to the eternal purpose, which is purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. The name of the church means fully purposed. He just said, you are eternally purposed in Christ Jesus. You can't get much more fully purposed than an eternal purpose. Right? It's all of it. All right? He has fully purposed. He's set them up to be completely equipped, fully purposed to fulfill the Great Commission. So that brings us to number two. Christ is characterized. First we see the, the church is called out. And named, and now we see the characterization of Jesus Christ himself. It says, Revelation 2, 1 again. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. 
Right, so the, the historical application is the same. It's, it's Christ. There's seven churches he's dealing with in Asia Minor. But what's up with these stars and these candlesticks? All right, if you were here last week, we saw this in Revelation 1, verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches themselves. Okay, Doctrinal application here, I can't, I can't say I completely understand all of the details of these seven stars and these seven candlesticks. But each, each one is a spiritual representation in front of God in heaven. Right? He says that's a reality. If you're a student of the Bible, it shouldn't surprise you that, that there are spiritual representations of physical things here on earth. All right? We see that all through Scripture. The, the churches we see here, another thing we see back in Daniel is, is governments. Daniel chapter 10, verse 10 through 13 says, And behold, an hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee and stand upright. For unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. And he said unto me, Fear not, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. So Daniel, the context here, Daniel gets this vision. He, he has no idea what this is all about, this dream. He needs an interpretation, and he lays down before the Lord and cries out for an answer for 21 days. And this angel comes to Daniel, and he picks him up and puts him on his knees. And he stands him up, and David's trembling because there's this spiritual being right in front of him. It's a little scary. And he says, don't, don't fear. Verse 13, or verse 11, or verse 12, how about that? Then he said unto me, fear not, for from the first day thou didst set thine heart to understand... And to chasten thyself before the, the, thy God, thy, thy words were heard. I heard you. We heard you then, and we're, we were on our way to you, verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. Daniel's praying and fasting and, and looking for an answer for 21 days, and somebody stops this angel on his way to Daniel. How long do you think it takes an angel to get somewhere? Scripture shows it doesn't take a whole lot of time. But something stopped him. He says it was the prince of Persia. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know what power the prince of Persia had, but it wasn't the physical prince of Persia. It was the power behind him, wasn't it? It was a spiritual force that represented that governmental power. Right? There's a spiritual force that stops him, so it takes 21 days, and he says, but lo, Michael, that would be the archangel, one of the chief princes came to help me. And I remained there with the kings of Persia. There was a spiritual battle going on. That's why you didn't get your answer right away. That I'd encourage you. Keep praying. Right? God's listening. There's a whole lot of stuff going on we don't know about. Another thing that we see a physical and a spiritual representation of is, is the tabernacle. In Hebrews 8, chapter 1, or chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and, a true, and th of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. See, Moses was told to put a tabernacle together, and that was the one that man pitched. God says there's a true tabernacle, 
not the one man pitched, okay? Not the one man put together. He says, for if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing there are priests offer gifts according uh, to the law who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God. Okay, so Moses was given an example. He was given a pattern. He said, build this tabernacle. This tabernacle that you're going to see, the physical one here on earth, is a shadow of what's real and what's in heaven. So God's flipping this thing around on us. We look around and we see the real world, right? We see people and we see stuff, and God says all of that is so that you can get attention, get, so I can get your attention of the spiritual realities that exist in heaven. I remember when my son, who's six now, when he first discovered his shadow, right? It was like, you know, he's running, trying to get rid of that thing. What's, what's this thing stuck to my feet? What do I do? And then it became a game to see, you know, if, if I could get my shadow ahead of your shadow. It, it, it's fun, you know. It's a little weird at first when you're a kid. It's okay. It's, it's just a shadow. It's, just, it's not a real thing. It's not the real thing. And God's saying that's the way this spiritual, physical stuff works. All this stuff that you're seeing is temporary. It's just a representation of what's real in heaven. All right, so there's, there's a reality, which is spiritual, where God is. And then there's what we know, which is temporary, which is a picture, which is a shadow. If we knew what God knew, or knows, the spiritual wouldn't weird us out so much. Maybe, maybe this would. <laughs> maybe, maybe the grotesque that we see would be a little more grotesque to us. And we would focus more on the things that God says are eternal. Another thing that we see that has both spiritual and, and physical represent, representations is, is us, believers. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us, he's made us alive together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up, check this out, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He says, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This, this is a nice church. We love this building. We love you people. But this is not a heavenly place. Right? Or I wouldn't feel the way I feel getting up out of bed each morning. This is not heaven. But he says we are in heavenly places in Christ Jesus right now. There's a spiritual representation. Okay? So back to the seven angels, there are, there's some sort of spiritual representation of the churches. God is speaking to them about the churches and about the spiritual condition of those churches. Beyond that, how they communicate, what else they do, who they talk to, is, is speculation on my part. All right? It's fun to talk about, it's fun to dream about how those things play out, but it's difficult to be emphatic. The other description Christ, of Christ here is one walking among the candlesticks of those churches, or, or the churches. And, and this is more of an inspirational application. God has always loved his creation, and he has always, because he loves his creation, desired to walk with his creation. Back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, it says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Right? This is written as though this is some pattern that was a continual thing that happened, okay? They, they had the ability to walk with God 
in their perfection in the garden. What an awesome privilege that would be. This is not God coming because he knew they messed up. In the cool of the day, I'm going to go in and, and find out that they sinned. Right? He, he knew, but this is what he did. He walked with them. And we are no different today. In Christ, we have a walk with the Lord. Romans 6, 4 says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We have a walk with the Lord. He's given us a new life, and he wants us to walk it with him. Galatians 5.25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And then 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. John says, if we say that we have fellowship with him, that's Christ, and walk in darkness, we lie. We do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. Just like Adam and Eve, our sinful condition, our sin hinders our walk with the Lord, doesn't it? Whatever sin we allow in our lives, whatever darkness we allow in our lives, keeps us from walking with the Lord. So he walked among the seven golden candlesticks among the churches, and that, that is exactly what he desires to do with us as a body and as individuals. All right, so we're at 11.30, and we've covered verse 1. We're doing good. Never fear, we're going to pick up the pace here. The third thing we see here is the church's condition, right? The church's condition. And here I'm, I'm putting the historical and the doctrinal together again because they go hand in hand. One of them shows us the other. And so we're going to look at the, the history. We're going to look at the doctrinal application, application that shows us how much time this took. All right, so under the, the church's condition, we actually have this breaking down into two divisions. The first one is the commendation. He commends this church for their good behavior, for their walk. I'm looking in verse, verses 2 and 3, he says, I know thy works and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake has labored, and hast not fainted. He says, I commend you, church, for those things. That's awesome. The fully purposed church is living out their purpose. And that's what he says. And he says, good job. What a privilege it would be to hear from God. Good job, church. Good job. The first thing we see is labor. They worked hard. Over in Acts chapter 20, I told you before, this is when Paul is saying goodbye to his, this church he's been at for three years. He's given an account of what he put on display for them to learn from. And in verse 33, he says, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities. I worked on what I needed to, I had to, to survive and to them that were with me. I worked for others. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak, and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. This church followed Paul's example. They got it. They labored for others. They didn't just do things and build their own kingdom. They labored for others, and God commends them for that. The second thing we see is patience. They didn't quit when it got difficult. It's called labor for a reason. It's hard. All right, and what, what is the most difficult thing to do when work is hard? 
keep doing it, right? <laughs> to not stop. They were patient. It takes patience to keep pushing through. In verse three of our text it says that they have borne, they have carried. They put the burden on their shoulders of other people. They lifted them up and they carried them, right? They, they followed Paul's example. He says two times that they worked or labored. He says two times that they were patient. A third thing, and this one's a little bit curious because of our current day definition of it. The third thing they had that God commended them for was their intolerance. Ooh, you know, that's a terrible thing. But what they were intolerant for, God commands us the same. There are things in this life you cannot, cannot tolerate. There are things in the church you cannot tolerate. And this church at Ephesus said they did exactly what Paul charged them to do in dealing with such, such, such situations. Revelation chapter 2, he says, I know thy works and thy labor, how thou canst not bear them which are evil, how thou hast tried them which say they're apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And then down in verse 6 he says, thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans. They have no tolerance for evil. They have no tolerance for liars. They have no tolerance for this Nicolaitan, which we'll see what that is in a little bit. He doesn't say that they were judgmental and critical of people different than them. He says they were intolerant of evil. Back again to Acts chapter 20 and Paul's example, he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. I'm leaving. You're now in charge. It's your job to oversee and protect the flock, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Hey, guys, look out. They're coming. I know they're coming. Also, of your own selves shall men rise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul's example, Paul's teaching was, man, they're coming. You've got to be ready to recognize them. You've got to be ready to deal with them. Because this is Christ's church, not yours. But he's allowed you the oversight. So Paul personally taught them how to react to that evil when someone's attempting to divide. One thing they apparently were taught was to recognize false teachers and false apostles. And this is something he also wrote to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11 says, I am become a fool in glorying. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended of you, for in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. Truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Paul says, hey, Corinthian church, you should have treated me a certain way, but you didn't. I could have demanded it, but I didn't because I'm nothing. I'm not worried about me. I had the signs of an apostle. Wait a minute. There's actual signs that show who is speaking for the Lord and who is not? Yes, and this church knew what they were. There are signs. There are wonders. There are mighty deeds that were required to establish the very first churches. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says in verse 1, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ, our Lord, how many apostles do you know that have seen the Lord Jesus Christ? Somebody that claims to be an apostle 
according to the book of Acts, chapter 2 today, take two steps back. He says, the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. Paul says there are signs that prove apostleship. You've got to look for those things. You've got to test the spirits. You've got to know who you're against and who is against the church. Romans chapter 3, verse verse 4. God forbid, yet let, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. God is saying there there are things you must judge. There are things you must account for. There are things you must stop if you're in that position of authority. Because someday you're going to be judged on how you reacted to those things. I warned you, Paul said, they're coming. God's going to hold you accountable on how you react to them when they come. He says you've got to judge. You've got to be intolerant of those things. And again, we'll see the, the Nicolaitan thing here in a minute. The last thing that he commends them on is their endurance. Acts chapter 20 again. Paul's goodbye to the Ephesus church. And when they were come to him, in verse 18, he, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came to, into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, and have showed you and taught you publicly, and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God, and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem. The Spirit is moving Paul. He knows he's not coming back. The Spirit has communicated that with him. Not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. He's got that waiting for him. The Spirit is moving me, and, and, and it's going to be rough. But check it out in verse 24. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. He says, what moves me is finishing. What moves me is doing what I've been called to do because Christ is worth it. I'm not worried I'm not excited about, but I'm not worried about what the world can do to me because God has put me on a mission to glorify his name and I'm going to do it. And we have some examples, so the doctrinal application here from the history, we have examples of church fathers that did just this, that followed the examples directly after the apostles. The apostles had disciples of their own that they taught and trained and and, and commissioned to lead the churches, right? After their deaths. Ignatius was one of these. He, he wrote seven letters to different churches himself. It wasn't the same churches. But he was quoted as saying that, that if you could remove his heart and, and cut it up into little pieces, every one of those pieces would have the name of Jesus Christ written on it. His heart belonged to Jesus Christ. Every bit of it. Can we say that? That's pretty awesome. Polycarp was another it said that, that he was a disciple of John the Apostle. He was bishop in, in Smyrna. He was martyred. There was a guy named Justin Martyr. They gave him a new last, last name, I guess. He pleaded for the, the emperor of Rome to stop the attacks on Christians and was eventually beheaded because of his stance for Christianity. 
these men, there's a long, long list we don't have time for right now, but there's a long list of men that, that, that fought hard for the Lord, that worked to preserve his word, to preserve the church. All right, but the second thing that we see in this era, we see a, a commendation, but we see a condemnation, right? They were commended for their good works, but he says, there's something that I have to condemn you on. In verse four, he says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. He says they, they left their first love. They have left Christ. They have left his word. Remember, any time we see God moving, what is Satan doing? He's looking to counter that. Right? And, and God is moving in the direction to fully equip this church with his word and the truth to carry that on into however long the church lasts. So what is Satan going to do? Satan's going to do what he's always done. He's going to come against the word of God. He's going to look for a way in and a way to twist it just enough so that it's off just enough so that when you get down the road, you're way off. All it takes is a little bit. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 says, And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We started off perfect. You can't get more perfect than the chief cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And the foundation was set with him and the apostles who had the word of God from the word of God, Jesus Christ. It's a perfect foundation. It's perfectly set up. And from there, it's up to us to build according to the foundation, to stick with the truth. Looking quickly at history again, we can follow the writings of men who were connected to the apostles during this time, often referred to as the apostolic fathers, the, those who started the churches after or, or, or continued the churches after the apostles were gone. One of them was Clement of Rome. I think I'm pronouncing these right, but we'll guess. Who began to see a difference between church members and pastors, which is not biblical. He saw that commoners, common church members, were, were, were the sheep, and, and, and we were the shepherd. Well, that, that, that applies, but there's one shepherd, and that's Jesus Christ. Right? If anything, we're an under-shepherd, and we still do what he says to do. There's no difference between us and the Bible. He saw similarities between commoners as, as the laity and the pastors as, as priests, like the Levitical priesthood. Well, the Bible tells us that we're all priests if we're in Jesus Christ. That is not a biblical difference. He says that they were above the laity. Nicolaitan, Nico, means to conquer. Laity means common man. This is the conquering of the common man, and this is something that Jesus Christ hates. When you set up a system where you have to come to me to talk to God, God hates that system. He hates when we enter pride into the occasion because that's of the devil, every bit of it. Ignatius is another guy. He was the first to initiate this, this idea of the Catholic Church, the universal church. Doesn't sound bad, it's just a word. 
It, it seems innocent from our perspective, but it's not a Bible word. It's not a Bible concept at this time. And then he also referred to himself as a son of, not of, not of God, a son of the church. Also not really far off, but, but it's not biblical. Polycarp added to this by saying that, that faith is our mother, and we must receive salvation through the church. Now we've taken a sidestep, haven't we? We're getting a little bit too far off for comfort here. Because the Bible doesn't say any of that. We don't need to go through the church. Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It has nothing to do with the church to receive salvation. The church is where I want you to hang out afterwards. Right? I'm building the church. And Justin Martyr, who, who gave his life for Christ, came up with some real crazy ideas. The idea that, that Christianity predated Christ, so that, so that these philosophers that he enjoyed reading, namely Socrates and Plato, were actually Christians without even knowing it. Isn't that convenient? Pagan philosophers who did not know Christ, because had they been alive when Christ was, they would have still been in their philosophy against the word of God. You see how quickly this thing unravels when you take a step or an angle just a little bit different from God's word. They left their first love. These inspirational men began to deviate from God's word and allowed Satan a foothold in the world of religion to build what we'll see in the coming weeks as a massive one-world religion, which you have to come to the church for salvation, not Christ, and go through fathers in order to communicate with God and be cleansed from your sin. It starts small, and it goes crazy really quick. And Satan has a foothold, and we call both Christian. So I'm confused. That's exactly what he wants. So how does this apply to us? The, the inspiration portion here, Revelation 2, verse 5, he says, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, turn from it, and do the first works. Or else I will come unto thee quickly, and I will remove thy candlestick out of this place, or out of his place, except thou repent. You see, if there's no flame, there's no purpose for a candlestick. If you don't love the Lord, there's no flame. He's not interested in interior decoration. He doesn't just have a collection of candlesticks sitting around. It's for a purpose. We are to be the light unto this dark world until Christ returns. If there's no light, there's no need for a candlestick. Is there a light here at First Baptist Church? That's what we must evaluate. All right, so how can we keep from leaving our first love? You know, it's kind of like dating, right? We'll talk to the fellas for a second. You find that girl. Man, there's my girl. You find that girl, and when you see her, your heart's doing this stuff, and, and you, you find a way to interject yourself into her conversations, and you, and you, you find her phone number, and you, you talk to her on the phone, even though you hate phones and phone calls, and, and you find out what she's interested in, and you're not interested at all, but you're interested in being where she's at, and you're interested in learning what she likes and what she talks about, and so... So you're going out of your way, you're losing sleep, you're making sacrifices so that you can put yourself in her world. And she knows you love her because you're working hard for that, right? You're doing the first works. 
And then life happens, and, and hopefully you get married, and there's kids, and job promotions, and busy, 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 and does she know you love her still, man? It's not the topic of this morning, but it paints a good picture. How does she know you love her? Well, yeah, she knows. She knows. You know. You know. Right? How did she know to begin with? Because you made sacrifices, you went out of the way, you talked to her, you listened to her, you did the first works, that's how she knew. If you're doing that still, then she knows, absolutely. Absolutely she knows. Again, this is not to beat men up. Ladies, we can change that love to to honor and respect and we can have a different conversation. The purpose of this is to evaluate our first love for the Lord. We're, we're, we're feeling, for sure she loves me. I know she loves me. And then one day we come across Ephesians chapter 5. It says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Yeah, that's good. But you follow that cross-reference over to Colossians 3.19, and he says again, husbands, love your wives, and be not bitter against them. Why is he commanding us men to love our wives? Because it's real easy to get distracted and not do the first works. It just happens. And it happens quick. And so my point isn't to beat, beat us up, men. But the point is this. We say we love God, but we don't talk to him. We say we love God, but we don't get in his word and listen to what he has to say. We say that we love the Lord and, and we just don't have time because I can't sacrifice all of these things in my life that are so dear to me but we would have when we realized the, at first his love for us. Remember how you felt when Christ freed you from your sins? Remember how you couldn't get enough of his word? You couldn't be around Christians enough. You couldn't come to church enough. You didn't have to set your clock. You got up. Man, it was just so awesome. Why does it feel different today? Hopefully it doesn't. But if it does, why? I can promise you this. It's not because he did something different. It's because we have turned from our first works. We have stopped showing him that love. He still loves us just as much. It's our hearts who have ceased to do the first works. That's something we cannot allow to continue. The, last, the next thing we see, the last thing we'll see is the church celebrated. Revelation 2, verse 7, he says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Every church period has overcomers and a reward. For those that overcome in the the church period of Ephesus, they get to eat from the tree of life. If you've been around the Bible for a little while, that's kind of weird. Let's see if we can help by giving a little bit of a doctrinal, doctrinal understanding here. And this one is the most difficult, I think. And I have to be honest, I, ca- I cannot give a definitive explanation of why they're eating of the tree of life as a reward. But maybe we can help. We can, however, set up some boundaries of what they are n- clearly biblically not doing. Okay, so let's, let's start there. Let's say, for sure we know they're not doing this. For sure we know they're not doing this. 
So it might fall in between there, and we can have some fun with that. First of all, it is not overcoming. It is not overcoming in order to receive salvation. 1 John 2.25 says, And this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. Titus tells us that, that we serve a God that cannot lie. Right? The opposite of God is Satan, who is the father of lies. God doesn't lie. And he has promised us eternal life. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have, present tense, have everlasting life. So how long is everlasting life? Eh, everlasting, right? It doesn't stop. And so if you have everlasting life, when did it start? Whenever you got it. The idea of losing your salvation is ridiculous. It's eternal. And it's eternal from now until. There is no end. 1 John 5, 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have, present tense, eternal life. And that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. If you have something, you are in possession of it currently. If you have eternal life, it is never ending. There are no conditions to meet later for you to eventually get that eternal life. That's not what he's saying. So that can't be what it is there. John 6, 54. Don't let this one weird you out too much. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Okay, Christ was not promoting cannibalism. This is also not some weird miracle to where some man changes bread and wine into the actual blood and body of Christ. That's not what this is. This is a spiritual reality. Christ died on the cross. What, what, is, what does the Bible call the cross in other passages? He calls it a tree, doesn't he? That is our tree of life. What was the fruit? What fruit was produced from that tree of life? Christ's sacrifice and our eternal hope. That's the fruit of the cross. That's the fruit of that tree of life, right? He says, if you partake of that, you have eternal life. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, you've already eaten of the tree of life, so you don't need to eat again for eternal life, okay? So that's not the purpose of that reward. And the second thing that it's not, it's, it's not rewards for enduring the tribulation, right? There are some people that say, look, this is too weird. It doesn't fit. It's got to be pointing to the tribulation. The problem we have we just saw this a couple weeks ago. The church is not found in anything that documents the tribulation. We are found beforehand, and then somebody goes up to heaven. That's John. Then we're detailed the events that happen during the tribulation. When the tribulation's going on, we're, we're at the judgment seat. And when the tribulation ends, we come with Christ to the earth. We missed it. We're not there. So this can't be something that happens during the tribulation for the church. All right, so the third thing it, it, it is, and this is not a definitive end-all argument, this, it is something God views as a reward, not a requirement. Okay, God views this thing as a reward, so whatever it is, it's pretty cool. It's pretty amazing. 
Apparently, it's more incredible than, than apples, like we like to attribute to the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? It's something the world has not had access to for over 6,000 years. Right? This is something that it's not required for life, but it, it must be amazing to partake of. Why else would he offer it as a reward for sticking through the tough stuff? Maybe there's a connection to the beginning. Right? The first time we see the tree of, of life is, is in the garden, when God begins creation. We see the first church offered this as a reward, and then we see it again in eternity future. It comes in after the millennium, the tree of life comes back into play. The beginning, the re-beginning of all creation. Maybe there's some really cool tie in there that we just aren't quite smart enough to understand why that's so cool until this church gets to partake of that. A couple of things I think we can be more confident on are the historical and the inspirational. And we'll end with these. We know that, that access to the, to the tree of life was closed off in Genesis, after the first sin, right? That's the history of this. We know that, that God said no more of that because you can't be living forever in your sins. But the tree of life has, was referenced four different times in the book of Proverbs. And this, I believe, is both the historical and the, the inspirational application because I believe the church of Ephesus benefited from the tree of life in these ways, and we also can benefit from the tree of life in these ways today. So let's check those out. The, the tree of life, the first thing, first benefit, the first connection to that is wisdom. Proverbs 3.18 says she, and, and wisdom is personified as a female here. Any of you men who are married, you know, look, she's just smarter. She just is. She's just got a wisdom about her. Proverbs 3.18, she is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her, and happy is everyone that retaineth her. Overcome the movement against God in your age, Ephesians church, and you will receive wisdom. The second one is righteousness and soul winning. We find that in Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous, the righteous is a tree of life. And he that winneth souls is wise. Overcome the spirit that's moving against God and you'll live righteously and you'll win souls to Jesus Christ. The next one is patience and hope. Proverbs 13, 12. Hope deferred maketh the heart sick. If you got a hope and you got to wait for that thing, man, oh, you long for it. Makes you sick. But when the desire cometh is a tree of life. Right? Immediate satisfaction is not a tree of life. Waiting for something worthwhile is a tree of life. Patience, endurance through suffering. Man, when it pays off, it's so sweet. That's the tree of life. And the fourth one, this is quite obvious, is truth. Proverbs 15, 4, a wholesome tongue is a tree of life. What's a wholesome tongue? Well, the opposite is perverseness therein is a breach in the spirit. Perverseness, perversion is the twisting of the truth. It's a lie. It's not the truth. This is exactly what this church at Ephesus was good at and terrible at at the same time, somehow. They were good at calling out, hey, sinner, evil, hey, liar, we know who you are. You're not telling the truth. We've got the truth. 
this balance has to be something that we focus on. How much do we know? We, we are in a church that has been provided excellent teaching way before I came on staff. I'm not patting myself on the back. We have been provided direction and leadership and training and education for decades. We know the truth. Are we living it? Are we just holding it over everybody else? Or are we eating of the tree of life here? Are we partaking of God's word in such a way that it's an everyday walk? Because if it's not, then we're guilty of what Ephesus is guilty of. And we have left our first love, and God says there's no fire burning there. There's no church. I'll remove the candlestick. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I'm so thankful, as always, for your word, for what you show us, how you direct us. We have a lot of people here today that fall into a lot of different categories according to what you just showed us. I pray that those that do not know you as their first love to begin with would understand the love you have for them. I pray that they would cry out to you and say, yes, I understand that that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. For the rest of us, Lord, if we have left you as our first love, we're, we're repenting now. We're turning from that. We're turning 180 degrees, and we're gonna do the first works. We need that tree of life active every single day in our walk with you. We want you to be glorified. We, we long for the day when we see you face to face. And it's not this hard. But Lord, as it's this hard, we, we desire that patience and that hope that one day it's going to be so sweet. It's going to be so incredible to, to walk with you in person. We love you. We pray that you're glorified. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen.